you'll turn with me in Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9 this morning. Hear God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would take your word and work it deep in us this morning. Lord, may I step out of the way and be an instrument of your truth, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would guide, and that you would encourage us, that our ears and our hearts would be open this morning to the work of your spirit in us. Change us and make us more like you and more trusting in you. Help us to know you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I, I really like bookends. Um, you know, might be an overstatement because I, I actually only have one because we couldn't find the other and a mug has to suffice uh, for the other side of my bookend, but it works. Uh, the one bookend I have, I, I really like. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen them much these days, actually. Uh, you don't see bookends a whole lot. Maybe it's because I don't go into really nice offices where there's this big desk and, and the book sitting there or a nice library. You know, I, I would love a library. I've seen this library. Um, uh, it's actually of Rick Warren, uh, the, who's retiring, and, and he's got a library, and you actually can open up and keep walking back, open up one of the, the shelves and keep walking back into this. His library is bigger than our house, I think, but it's amazing, and I, I, I'm sure there's some beautiful bookends in there. But no matter how nice they look or how many bookends there are, they actually all serve the same exact purpose, whether it's a brick or something decorative. And they, they work to keep the books from falling over. That's really their sole purpose. They are support against the pull of gravity. They work to keep everything there. It's a simple job, but it's a, it's a necessary one at that. And as I read through this text this morning, I actually saw bookends. In verse 4, there's a call, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Verse 7, the peace of God. Verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. God is the bookends. He's the support. In some ways, this is, it feels like a, a New Testament version of Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Or the NASB puts that first line as, but as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. The, my God, his, his nearness supports me. It's a glorious truth. 
And I'm actually willing to venture that Paul had that background idea of the nearness of God, the presence of God in mind as he wrote this. As, uh, that, that idea really formed the foundation for all of his letters, that background of the theology of God's presence being a blessing for his people, and really the greatest blessing we could ever know. Because God is our support. He's the one who keeps his people, and in certain ways, he will keep us fully and completely. No, no one will snatch his children out of his hand. True believers are absolutely secure in Christ. And that is a blessing we can rest in with complete assurance as those who are in Christ. However, there's another aspect. The experience of our salvation in many ways, the experience of the, the blessings of our presence with God or God's presence with us in this life, they are somewhat dependent on our mindset and our actions, on what we do. We won't experience the fullness of the blessed presence of God if we're constantly anxious and fretting, if we're focused on things that are worthless, if we're running about without any conscious idea of Him actually being there. There is human responsibility in our enjoyment of the blessings of God. In a sense, there are stipulations. There are conditions for experiencing God's good presence, into which we, we've actually been given the privilege as adopted sons and daughters of God to experience the great promise of the covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. This morning, then, we're going to start looking at this text in Philippians, and we're going to do so by looking at the first half of this idea. We're going to look at the support, the support of God's presence. The, the, the next idea that we'll look at is stipulations. What is it? What are those conditions, those things that we need to do? And we'll touch on some of that this morning, but we're going to spend most of our time today and almost completely looking at the support. Who is our support. And, and that's my hope and desire today, is that we would gain a, a greater understanding, uh, not only in, a, in our minds, but in our hearts, of who our God is. Who is our support? I've recently been reading, and just really began reading, a, a book called Do You Believe? Twelve Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life by Paul Tripp. Uh, it's almost 500 pages, and he just goes through twelve doctrines. Uh, and in those, he, he just picks um, 12 that he sees as important, the doctrine of Scripture, second chapter is the doctrine of God, and he writes one chapter on the doctrine, kind of laying it out, and then the second chapter is, how does that make a difference in your life? How does that work, to, to work that, that truth in your life? Why does this make a difference to know this? He digs into them and, and, and sees how they are significant, and it's quite challenging and encouraging. And in the second chapter, as I said, he, he addresses the doctrine of God. And to begin, he essentially walks through, it kind of, in his own words, paraphrases, but says he pulls it straight from it, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. He just starts the entire chapter reading the confession. And I'm going to do that right now. Just follow along. This is from the Confession of Faith. It says this, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, 
Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He has made." nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all beings, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever Himself pleaseth. In His sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. To Him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience He is pleased to require of them. And in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure you caught all of that, right? But the point is, and, and this is what Tripp said at the end of it, he, he basically said this, he said, how in the world could anyone read or hear that description that human attempt to describe God as He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture and in Christ and not stand in complete and utter awe. Think of all the, the adjectives used to describe who God was and is. We can't let that become so familiar for us. It is awe-inspiring to know our God like that. God is amazing. He's, he's holy in all things, and it's important for us to know that. It's important for us to grow in our comprehension of His nature and His character. And I think this is why in so many, and if you read through Paul's prayers in his letters, much of his prayer is that you would know God, right? It's a prayer that we would know Him, that we would comprehend Him. The beginning of Philippians, Chapter 1, starting in verse 9, he, he prays, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But we actually see this idea that Paul does as he prays for believers to know this much more fully worked out in his letter to the Ephesian church. In both of his prayers there, the first one in chapter 1, Starting in verse 17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So in the knowledge of Him, getting to know Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, that we may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Praise that we would know that, that we would be able to comprehend that. And then further in chapter 3, he tells the believers that he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded, 
so foundationally dug in and, and firm, right? Rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May have strength to comprehend. I mean, think about it. Sometimes I, we don't even view our, our seeking knowledge of God and, and needing strength the way sometimes we did through school. When we're like, I can't get how this math problem works or I don't understand how this works out. I need strength to figure it out. I need help. We need help understanding who God is. We need to even be praying for one another and for ourselves for the strength to comprehend who He is. I want to grasp more deeply what has just been read. The confessions, teaching, scripture, Paul's prayer, I want that for you. But, but here's, the, here's the reality. Even if we grasp just a little of who God is, we see the backside of His glory like Moses. It is so easy to see where Paul comes with a command in an exhortation section Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's pretty simple because there is so much to rejoice in. It's not a statement that says rejoice in your circumstances always. It says rejoice in the Lord always. Now, certainly, that, that phrase is really in, in kind of the, the, the framework I gave. It's both a support in the Lord and uh, one of those stipulations. It's a command, rejoice. And we're going to look at that command part next week more, but this week we're looking at the in the Lord. One commentator wrote this. He said, in one sense, this injunction is so self-evidently right that it's embarrassing that we should have to be reminded of it at all. Surely all redeemed men and women will want to rejoice in the Lord. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been declared righteous because another has borne our guilt. We've received the gift of the Spirit, the down payment of the promised inheritance that will be ours when Jesus comes again. We are children of the living God. Our years may be fraught with difficulty, but eternity awaits us, secured by the Son of God. We shall see Christ face to face and spend an eternity in the purest worship and in consummated holiness. If we fail to respond with joy and gratitude when we are reminded of these things, it is either because we have not properly grasped the depth of the abyss of our own sinful natures and of the curse from which we have been freed by Jesus, or because we have not adequately surveyed the splendor of the heights to which we have been raised. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the command rejoice in the Lord really shouldn't even need to be there. It should be like breathing. We don't even think about it. We just do it. It's part of our life. This rejoicing is something as well, though, besides being a part of our life, it's something that we can do in the midst of whatever is going on in our lives. Because this rejoicing, he doesn't say, like I said, he doesn't say rejoice in what's going on. Not in our circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord. Because he never changes. 
He is always full of steadfast love and mercy and grace. He is always loving towards His children. He is always with us. But further into our text, beyond that, rejoice in the Lord. We see at the end of verse 5 these words, the Lord is at hand. Now, I first really caught this phrase a few years ago. A few years ago, uh, rather than kind of doing the McShane reading plan that I had been doing, I decided that I'd read a book of the Bible every day for a month. And I chose Philippians, was one of the first ones that I did. And as I read through it every day and switched translations partway through, different things, things just started to stick out. And here, this, all of a sudden, the Lord is at hand, just leapt off the page. And, and when you see this, and you see it, and, and as we'll be able to see it more in the context of, of the verses around it next week, what this idea points to, I think, is the Lord's imminence, His imminence. Now, now what do I mean by imminence? Okay, there are really two aspects to this that I want to look at. One is just the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. He's, he's close by. He is here. He's with us. But also that the return of the Lord could be at any moment. It is imminent. We don't know, but it could be at any moment. And in regard to the, that latter idea, Paul has already hinted at this in chapter 3, starting in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will return, folks. We do not know the day or the hour, but He will return, and the reality is, is there will be a reckoning. We, we confess when we do the, the creeds. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And when you put this in the immediate context of what we looked at last week with Euodia and Syntyche and, and the division that they had and, and with the, the nature of how it was affecting the church, you could almost give an extended paraphrase that, that one gave of, to what purpose is this rivalry, this self-assertion? The end is nigh. When, will you, when you will have to resign all, bear with others now that God may bear with you then. It's this idea that you understand that the, the end is near. It, it could be at any time. What, what is with everything that's so self-centered? Learn to bear with one another. Learn to live like Christ because you know that His return could happen at any moment. We've lost that in our lives. We've lost this, the end is near. We see the guy on the corner with a cardboard thing that says the end is near, and we scoff at him. But the reality is, is it's true. It's true. Yet, folks, there's also the former idea, that of God being with us, that He's actually near to us, that He is at hand. That, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. In Psalm 34, David invites us, invites the reader to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he also wrote in verse 18 of that psalm, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to the brokenhearted, to all and saves the crushed in spirit. And then in Psalm 145, 18, we read, the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And you see that throughout Scripture of the nearness of the Lord to His people who call upon Him. Now, up until that point of talking about the nearness of God, I, I really focused on God's transcendence. As we read through the confession, that was so much of the transcendence of God that He is, he is apart from us. He is different. There is, there is a separateness between us and God. 
And here's this imminent aspect that He is with us. He's near to His people. And of course, we see that nearness most clearly in Jesus, don't we? John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's the fulfillment in so many ways of I will be your God and you will be my people. I I will dwell among you. It's Christ dwelling among his people. And we cannot even forget how how Paul wrote of Christ's incarnation in chapter 2 of Philippians, that even Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, the incarnation, uh, that he's Emmanuel, that he's God with us, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that death on a cross is not only what he came near to us, but he did so in order that we could be brought near to the Father. Because as sinful beings, we can't be near to the Father without a mediator, without another, and that's Christ. He is our mediator. He is the one in whom we can come and stand before the Father. Now, we're going to address a lot of this more next week, but this is all part of setting the stage for our call to really rest fully in God in any and every area of our lives. And I think that leads us to the next aspect of support that we see in this text, and that's verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Folks, this verse is a promise. It's a promise. Now, it's a promise that's contingent. It says, and, right? So, it's following from something, from verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, like I said, we're not going to dive into that part of verse 6 until next week, but it's important for us to know that there's stipulations in many ways of experiencing this peace of God. But what I hope to do this morning is that when, as we've seen the, the, the vast grandeur of who God is and the promise, why would we even hesitate to follow the stipulation? a good condition that God has given us. He says, basically, if you do the, if you pray and you give up your anxiety and you give it to God, the peace of God, which transcends and surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So first, the peace of God. Paul singles out peace here. Why does he do that? Well, First, I think we can all agree that peace is something we need. We're all desperately in need of peace, probably within our own thoughts and emotions, in relationships that we have, in marriage, in parenting, at work. But more significantly, we do not naturally have peace with God. That only comes through the work of Christ. Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been not brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He Himself, He alone, He exclusively is our peace with God. 
Christ has won our peace in his life and death and resurrection. But this peace was not only vertical in that respect, it, it affected our horizontal relationships as well. If we continued in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, it says, After, For he himself was our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, obviously, it's talking about the the massive divide between the Jew and the Gentile, but that, that principle applies that we have peace with one another in Christ. We come together in one body. Yet there's another aspect of this that I think we cannot fail to see, and that's whose peace is this? The peace of God. It's God's peace. It's peace that's not actually dampened or changed by situations that we face in life. We may not feel peaceful, but the peace of God has not changed. This peace is as steady and steadfast as God Himself. It is as sure as the sun will rise. And Paul further says that it is a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's a phenomenal statement. It's a statement that we, we read by and we're like, I, I think I know what that means, but I'm not sure I know what that means. Like, how do I understand it if it surpasses all understanding? Calvin wrote this. He said, nothing is more foreign to the human mind than in the depth of despair to exercise nevertheless a feeling of hope in the depth of poverty to see opulence, and in the depth of weakness to keep from giving way, and to promise ourselves that nothing will be wanting to us when we are left destitute of all things, and all this in the grace of God alone, which is not itself known otherwise than through the Word and the inward earnest of the Spirit." So the idea of surpassing all understanding is not, not that it's, it's not that it's something that we cannot know or experience, but that there is no other explanation than that it is the peace of God. No human understanding can grasp it. Believers can have peace of God in any and every uh, circumstance, and that is impossible for the world to comprehend but yet it is what the Lord gives to believers who continue to seek refuge in Him. He is our strength and our shield, our rock, our fortress. It may be absolutely beyond the realm of human comprehension, but it is not beyond the realm of the experience for the believer, for the believer who seeks the Lord in all things. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, we read this, "'You keep Him in perfect peace.'" whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He can keep us in perfect peace because he is immovable. He's an everlasting rock. He is firm and steady. If you want to be steady in a storm, you don't hold on to a leaf 
that's floating by. You hold on to the tree that's firmly rooted. Let's hold to Christ, to the Lord who is firmly rooted, who will not be moved. And let's experience the peace of God. I think of John 14, 27. Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Why? Why are we not to be troubled or to be afraid? Because He has given us something of His. He has given us His peace. And then I think Jesus reminded them of this after the resurrection when He, when he came into the room with the disciples. And really the first words He said was, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And so then Paul writes that this peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will serve as protection. Protection for our hearts and minds. We have, we've been called to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We're called to guard. Here, God says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christ didn't just save us. He didn't just save believers, but He's still at work in us, and He's given us the blessings. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. One of those blessings is peace, the peace of God in any and all circumstances. It's the peace that guards. It's the peace found in Christ. And we'll probably look at that idea of guarding your hearts and minds a little bit more next week. But there's one other aspect of the support, just the, 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 the tail end of the bookend of the supports here. Paul writes at the end of verse 9, you know, practice these things and the peace of God, or and the God of peace will be with you. Earlier, it's the peace of God. It's one thing to have the peace of God. It's another thing to have the God of that peace with us. And that's really the greatest blessing. It's God Himself with us. It's Emmanuel, God with His, God with His people. Folks, this is the nature of our support. This is what we have. This, this is what, I, I, I want you to remember this as we'll come back next week and look at more. This is the support. This is when, when we hear that phrase or it's pasted on a, uh, etched onto your coffee mug, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. Know why you can do that. Because you have great support in God. The Lord is at hand. He is with us. He is near. The peace of God is with us. The, the God of peace is with us that, that we experience as we do those things, as we follow His good command, His command that's not burdensome, His command that's actually for our good. 
And so as we comprehend these things more and more, comprehend who God is more and more, and not just intellectually, but to the very core of our being, we are going to experience that support. Because I think at that point in time, we'll have a lot less problem with the stipulation when we know the nature of the support. I think it's hard, probably darn near impossible, to trust someone I know nothing of. Like, I, like somebody goes, oh, why don't you just let, let your kids stay with me for a week? And I just met them at Kroger. I'd be like, no way. I wouldn't go with you for a week, let alone let my kids. Like, we, we don't trust someone we, we don't know. That's why it is so important for us to get to know God. I know I might sound crazy. Pick up the Westminster Confession and reread and study. It has the Scripture proofs with it in chapter 2. And read through that and study the character and the nature of God. It's important for us to know who He is. It's so vital for us to have knowledge of God and to grow in that knowledge. Because when, when we do that, then we can come to know the joy and peace that we have in Him more. When we see all that God is, all that He's done, His character, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, His holiness, we will trust Him. And we will sing because that is the greatest joy the world has ever known. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for all that you are. And we pray that you would help us to know you. Help us to celebrate and to rejoice in you. Father, as we, as we sing, uh, as we sing of joy to the world, you know, far as the curse is found, Christ has dealt with it. What a glorious truth. May we know you more and more and rest in our great support, our great King, our great Lord and God and Savior. Pray that you would work this in us for our sake, for your glory, for our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.